I don't think that I maybe have like just a very small handful of shows, if that, um, which have smaller audiences than. Wait, I don't know what I'm saying. That sentence was not working. You got to start over. Abort, abort, abort. Where am I? Where, who am I again? You don't sound so great, Mike. Yeah, I've been... Uh, I've had like the worst, potentially the worst illness I could have bar one. What is Now I need to know, what is the bar one? The worst illness I could have is laryngitis. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but what do you have now? I have a throat infection. You have a throat infection. That is really damaging to my business. That is a <laughs> professional hazard yeah. in your line of work, sir. I'm surprised it's taken this long. You've not had any throat infections or throat-related illnesses in the entire time you've gone uh, you've gone full-time with podcasting? That hasn't happened yet? This is the first actual real illness I've had since hmm. I started Relay. Like, this is the first thing that stopped me working. I noticed that you were sick enough that you were pulling back from some podcasts and not doing yeah. as much work as you normally would. I haven't done any, which is, yeah, that's, I've really like, I've been sick for maybe four or five days mm-hmm. and I've done like some work one half day. <laughs> but I've dragged you out of bed to record Cortex here. <laughs> you you make it sound, I mean, I need to tell the listeners how nice you've been to me. The last few days, I know it's breaking your character, you know, mm. that you're, you're not just a robot. Mm. You have actually been very nice to me. Mm-hmm. You've, been, you, you've been very accommodating. It's actually in character because it's much less about you getting better and much more about like, oh, I don't have to record an episode this week. <laughs> I feel like you're, this is the thing, I feel like you're trying to give that impression, uh-huh. but I like to believe that you genuinely care. I, I'm happy to let you believe that. <laughs> I tell you what, though, it's been strange to actually be kind of in bed sick, not working. Because mm-hmm. this is the I say, it's the first time that I've done this, and it reminds me a little bit more of what it was like to work a job, you know? How so? Because when you work for yourself, you kind of, you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Like, you work on your holidays, you know? Mm-hmm. You, if, you're, if you've got a sore throat or you've got a stomachache or something, then maybe you, you're still more likely to just put up with it than where previous you might be like ah, i don't feel that great today i'm not gonna go to work right but now it's like no i can't work and and that has been kind of a real peculiar thing for me like i've had stuff coming in i've had emails coming in and i see what they are and i'm like i just can't do this Like, there's been some things that i've needed to do with and i've been sending emails to people and i'm like i'm gonna have to get back to you in a few days because i'm not really with it right now mm-hmm. <laughs> and i've been genuinely worried that i would agree to something or say something that would be bad. Like, I, I had to send a few emails to some sponsors and stuff to let them know that some of the shows are going to be late. Mm-hmm. And I read the emails back, and it was like they were written by a nine-year-old. <laughs> like, and I don't know why, but they were just they're just written so badly. And, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm very pleased that I decided to take a few days to just rest. Yeah, so th- this wasn't the time to be renegotiating quarterly rates. No, no. Sponsors. Although, I'm sorry to tell you that uh, our sponsors now pay us $25 an episode. I'm sorry to tell mm. you, Craig. Uh, uh, looks like I need to update some spreadsheets of mine then. This <laughs> might change some things. Yeah, I've, I've plummeted to the bottom <laughs> of the list. I'm not just merely sitting at it anymore. We have to start a whole brand new list. <laughs> I can't remember the first time that I was really sick after getting self-employed, but... Uh, 
I mean, w- one of the things is, since I used to be a teacher, I used to get sick way more because you're exposed to kids all the time, which are super germy. And so it's just like getting throat infections or just getting sick was a much more frequent occurrence. And you're talking all day, you know, you're putting stress on those those parts of your body as well. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're busy all day. You're interacting with people. You know, it's just it's it's unavoidable. So it seems like since I became self-employed, I am I am sick much, much less frequently. But I am aware of the same thing uh, as you, which is it just like in some ways when you're sick and you have a regular job, it's like a snow day, right? It's like a grown up snow day. It's like, you know what? I don't feel very well today. Maybe I can't leave the house uh, and, you know, uh, because I'm just I'm not doing well. But in comparison to having to go into work, this is a holiday. (laughs) There has been a weird part of me, like once I once I kind of settled into my illness where i was like whilst i feel terrible mm-hmm. it is kind of nice to just lay in bed and watch mm-hmm. making a murderer mm-hmm. right which i watched over two days <laughs> good that's the only way to watch it it's the only way to do it <laughs> see relaxing is the wrong word because i felt horrible i actually haven't felt this ill in years like i can't mm-hmm. remember the last time i felt this bad like not in my adult life anyway um so i've i felt atrocious but there's still been this part where it's like this is Slightly different to regular, but I have I I want to come back to this in a minute. But there was one thing like you're saying about getting sick as a as a teacher, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in the doctors. And I was like, how are doctors? How how are they alive? <laughs> like all day, they are seeing sick people. Right? I don't understand how doctors stay healthy. I I mean I'd be curious to know, but my presumption is that they don't. My presumption is that doctors are are uh, in an even worse position than teachers are. I bet doctors take an enormous amount of sick time. Like they get sick much more than the general population. They just have to. They can't not. But and then I wonder: is there some kind of like special medication? <laughs> doctors yeah, no, take? They, keep, yeah. they keep the good stuff to themselves. <laughs> yeah, right? that's, the curals. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that you get with your doctor's license. Is also is also initiation into the brotherhood of good medicine. It's wink, you wink. Can't tell anybody else about. <laughs> like, like give you a little nudge, nudge, and they just give you a brown envelope. It's like yeah. just take one of these one time, <laughs> yeah. and you're set. <laughs> yeah, but I think the general population feels like, oh, doctors don't seem like they're sick, but it's a selection bias because you're only able to make an appointment with the doctor when they're there. Right. So, you, so you always see the doctor when the doctor is healthy, and you feel like, boy, doctors are always healthy. How are they not sick all the time? I bet they actually are. They have to be. It's, it has to be, right? Like, you can't not. They, they see sick people. Like, that is all they do. They just talk to sick people. They touch sick people. They don't want to touch people most of the time. Yeah, let's, sick. let's move on. This is this is getting too much. This so, is getting so, too much. So go back to staying in bed. Uh, one of the things that I think I've I've realized this time uh, more than ever is kind of how like I am in the kind of situation that I'm in from mm. a from a self-employed perspective. Like I kind of work in a small company, right? Like there's there's me and Steven and then there's a bunch of like other people who do, do multiple different things, you know, like hosts and we have people that help out with other things, kind of like mm. hosts take on some like additional responsibilities depending on the shows that they do. But it hasn't been an issue for me. Um, people have filled in for me, uh, that kind of stuff. And it's been nice to know that like, I have this system around me that I didn't really know 
before because I'd never needed it or or felt like I needed to use it. Yeah, like we're all everybody's always kind of helping each other out. Like mm-hmm. if I'm busy with something or Steven's busy with something or whatever, we might step in for each other. But this has been like a week of me just not doing anything. And at last I checked, the business hadn't crumbled to pieces. You know? <laughs> yeah. This is your first test of a bit of a support system yeah. with the tiny company that you have built. And it's really nice to know that it's worked, which made me think of you all up there in your little ta- ivory tower of one. <laughs> what do you do when you get sick? Uh, I mean, the answer is I don't work. <laughs> uh, and everything comes to an absolute grinding halt. Like there's, there's, no, there's no way around that. Uh, it was actually just... I was, I was pretty sick for a couple of days um, a few weeks ago. And it was, it was a similar thing. I'm like, okay, well, nothing's going to happen now. And there's nothing I can do about that. And it's totally fine. Yeah, I think it's maybe less of an issue because of the way that like our businesses are made up, right? Yeah. The way that our business works and like with this show, this has to continue to be made for money to be made. Right. right? Because of the way that, that our advertising comes in. But it's different with YouTube, right? The videos that are there... Not they obviously don't make as much money as if you're putting out new ones, but they still generate money. Yeah, the, that is definitely one thing that I like about having the YouTube videos up on YouTube is it provides a certain amount of semi-passive income. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't tested. I haven't tested it too long. I mean, there has no. to be there has to be some <laughs> kind of yeah. half life for yeah. if I don't upload videos in a year the the average daily views have to be going down i think the worst thing you could do is think about trying to test that you push that too far <laughs> like a year <laughs> yeah <laughs> um if i'm sick it's not really a huge deal because i intentionally try to remove as many deadlines from my business as possible which is one of the reasons why Cortex is always slightly annoying to me because you and your schedules and your deadlines, it's like, what is this thing in my life? I have to be here at a time. It's got to be like, oh, Mike, you know, you're just so insistent about this. Whereas everything else is like, you know, (laughs) hello, Internet. We'll get it out when it comes out. When's the video available? When it's done? You know, like that's that's how I try to arrange things. I feel like you must have known that this was going to be the case, though, when we started this. Or at least you feebly thought you could change me. Yeah, I don't... I don't know what I was thinking back then. I was probably sick when we first started talking about doing this, and that's how you got me to agree. There's something I think about is is like I'm just I'm just really aware that deadlines and me we don't get along. I know there I know there's a whole very large group of people who always talk about how oh, they can't possibly get anything done unless they have deadlines to motivate them, and I find that I am just the absolute reverse. That the more deadlines there are in my life the less I end up tending to work. Like, deadlines are anti-motivators for me. Oh, I hate deadlines, but I don't think of the schedules as deadlines. It doesn't... Still deadlines. You got got sponsors, you got people waiting for you. They're deadlines. They're deadlines built into that. Yeah, I mean, I can see why you would see them like that. But to me, it's just the knowing that if I didn't have these things on a calendar, there would never be anything done. That's a bit of a a different thing. But but anyway, like, I guess the point that I was just trying to get is, like, this is... This sort of goes along with being sick. And one of the best changes I made for my own psychological life uh, in 
the history of my own self-employment here was when Patreon bought out Subbable, which was the platform that I was previously using to do crowdfunding. When that transition happened, I had an opportunity to change from uh, automatic monthly billing of the people who are supporting my YouTube channel to changing that to only manually billing them when I actually upload what I consider to be a, quote, real video, whatever oh, yeah. that means in my head. Right? Yeah, I can see how much that, that will have helped you. And, and, I mean, here's the thing. Like, like there is, there's no doubt that I made more money under the old system, right? When it's like month by month and, like, you're automatically billing someone. But holy God, did that just add an enormous amount of stress and anxiety to my life that I really, I really did not want. <laughs> And, and so like, like, man, that was, I debated it for a little while, whether or not to make that change. And I am so happy I made that change because it just, it felt like it eliminated this constant deadline for my life. It made every summer feel really guilty if I was traveling with family instead of working on other stuff, because you just know like, man, when the 30th rolls around, people are going to get billed, whether you made something or not, like if you got it up in time and it's just, I hated that. So I, I am so happy to have it this way now. Did you feel kind of guilty? Well, I mean, like, people knew what they, like, there was no guarantee that there was a video being made. Yeah, yeah. Like, guilt was guilt is not the correct feeling. It was just a constant source of anxiety. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about this before, right? Which is that when you are working for yourself, it is very hard to separate when you're working from when you're not working, you know, personal time from yeah. business time. It's very hard to do anyway, which is almost certainly why when you were laying in bed, partly on death's door, part of you was also thinking, eh, this is kind of nice because I'm forced to not work. Yeah. Right? Like something else is forcing you to let it go. There was nothing I could do. So it's like, you can just not worry about this for a few days because you have no option. Like if exactly. you get up and try and go to that computer, you will fall down before you get there. <laughs> right. You're going to make a mess. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be awful. Uh, and And so... When the billing was just monthly, any time, like as soon as the first of the month rolled around, I just always had this anxious feeling of like, I have to try to get something up now. And until I have something up in this month, it made it just impossible to not be thinking about work and not in a not in a, like a productive way. Like, oh, I'm this amazing machine, like doing all this work because I have this gun to my head every month. It, it was just horrific, unwelcome, stress inducing anxiety. And then in situations like when we're talking about now, if, if there was a time when I just couldn't work or like family needed me or wanted me to be available or I was sick or something, it was just awful. Like, I, I really hated it. So. This is a case where I was very happy to switch to a system that's like, I will make less money under this new system and I will be so much happier. <laughs> Let me tell you the uh, the real benefit for this illness, though. Because mm -hmm. um, I'm on, on a diet right now, right? I can try to eat better. Oh, yeah. I've lost six pounds this week. Illness is great for weight <laughs> loss, I have also found. <laughs> yep, I am sitting proud <laughs> on, <laughs> on the scales right now. <laughs> I can weigh myself yesterday and I was like, Yes, illness. Way to go. <laughs> this is amazing. I should get infected more often. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> well done, Mike. Yeah, it, it, it brought me uh, many weeks ahead. Um, so I'm very <laughs> happy about that. And I hope that I can keep this, this weight as it is. <laughs> Thank you, illness. It'll come right back. 
This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code CORTEX at checkout to get 10% off. You know Squarespace. They're the ones that let you build a professional-looking site regardless of your skill level, no coding required. They have intuitive, easy-to-use tools that make your website look and feel exactly how you want. I know when I moved cgpgray.com to Squarespace, I was pretty happy with the way I could tweak it to get it to be just the right shade of gray that I wanted. Squarespace uses state-of-the-art technology to power your site and importantly, ensure both stability and security. They're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Their templates are stunning and in this modern age, they all have responsive design, which is super important. It means that if you load up a Squarespace site on your gigantic 27-inch iMac or your iPad Pro or your iPhone 5, it's going to look fine across all of those sizes. It's going to scale to the size of the screen. You don't want to have to design totally separate websites for each and every size. That's crazy. Squarespace just handles it for you. Squarespace has a ton more features, 24-7 support with live chat and email. They have teams around the world so that there's always someone on call. They have a commerce platform so you can add a store to your site. You can build great-looking single-page websites if you want to have a portfolio. If you are a developer and you really want to get in things, you can check out their dev platform, which lets you monkey around with the code if you are so brave. So start a trial today with no credit card required and begin building your website immediately. Just go to squarespace.com to get started. And when you decide after that free trial that you're going to keep using Squarespace, which you almost certainly are because they're great, please make sure to use the offer code CORTEX to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace for their support of Cortex and all of the great shows on Relay FM. Squarespace, you should. So you hit a milestone, I think it was last week sometime. Um, and you you cross two million YouTube subscribers. Yeah, just a cause of congratulations. Like I have and will congratulate you. But do you see it something like that? Do you? Is it a badge of honor? Two million. Uh, I'm glad the number is going up. Once you hit one, like one million, hooray! But like then, do you, is it like the next one? Is it five? Like, or is every million as exciting as the first million? If I could start over again. I would celebrate every doubling from one subscriber. <laughs> That's what I would do. <laughs> Man, that'd be a lot of celebrating. <laughs> Just at the beginning, though. Yeah, it's, it starts to get sad quite quickly. <laughs> that to me feels like the much more natural celebration point is a doubling. Because a yeah. doubling is not based on any number system. It's just, it's like, okay, you have twice as many as you had last time that you had the celebration. That's, that seems like the way it should be. But like, this is not to belittle two million, right? Because that is like a... It's one of those numbers, you know, that you can't even comprehend. Yeah, it you, just means nothing. Like, yeah. It's just so big. It's like, okay. It's, it's a it's population, a right? It's not even a number at this point. Like, you can't group that amount of people together. Like, it's it's an incredible number. Yeah. But it's like, you know, it's the whole thing. Of, you end up getting, and I, I had this a lot when working in finance, like, you, you get numb to numbers after you're around big numbers for a while. Like, they don't 
you see these huge numbers and it doesn't really mean anything anymore. Yeah, and you worked in a bank, so yeah. you must have just seen numbers with crazy zeros on yeah. the end of them. Just like, yeah. oh, okay, billion here, a billion there. It starts adding up to be real money after a while. Like, I just wondered that, because obviously, I imagine that when you hit one million, that was a real cause for celebration. I've got to imagine. That must have felt like you really achieved something. Okay, so yes and no. But but this this starts to get into uh, some of the particulars about like the way YouTube does this. Uh, and so, yes, I was super glad to hit a million subscribers, but it, it's been very clear over the time that I've been doing this that I don't know YouTube algorithms or like the way the system works has changed, and so it's very hard to have a real idea of this thing that I have a million of now is the same as when I had 200,000 of it just times five. Yeah, like I don't know how much you can explain this, but the the longer that me and you've been working together, the more attention I pay to YouTube. I watch more YouTube videos and I just pay more attention to what's kind of going on there. Mm -hmm. And I I look at people's numbers more um, and your numbers seem very atypical to what I see with other people. See, now, I don't watch very much YouTube, so you need to explain to me what you mean by that. So, like, you have 2 million YouTube subscribers, mm-hmm. and your videos very frequently top 1 million and more, mm-hmm. right? So you put out a video, and it's like a million or 2 million views, you know, mm-hmm. depending on how popular the video gets, and you have some that are way more than that. But on average, it seems like you get at least 50% that number, yeah, I'd say like a million feels like an average video now. Yeah. If if I got if I got lower than eight hundred thousand, I'd be sad, and if I get more than one and a half million, I'd be I'd be pleasantly surprised. So like a million is like your average, right? Right. Looking at that, but I look at people now and I see like two million subscribers, a hundred thousand views, or like two hundred thousand views, or half a million, mm-hmm. or I see like someone with 16 million subscribers and their videos get 3 million views or people that have the same subscribers as you and their videos are like in the tens of thousands. And I don't feel like I fully understand how YouTube works. Yeah. Because I know as a person coming to YouTube, if I click that subscribe button, I want to watch the majority of videos that are going to come in. Like I don't subscribe to a lot of channels. There are some where I subscribe to them and I pick and choose Mm-hmm. Um, but it just seems that there is a real kind of disparity amongst the accounts that, that I look at between what those two numbers mean in a way that doesn't really seem to make sense in my brain. Like Because I'm coming at it from podcasts. It's, it's even harder to tell subscribers and downloads in podcasting. But yeah. our numbers stay pretty stable, and that really doesn't seem to be the way that YouTube works at all. When I started with YouTube... It was very clear what a subscriber meant. It meant someone had pressed that button. And the way YouTube was set up, when that person went back to YouTube, they would see a list of all of the channels that they had subscribed to and the newest video from those channels. So it was very very obvious and very easy to see new stuff as it was coming in. But over time, and to the annoyance of a great many people, YouTube, like every other company that does this kind of thing, has Facebookized the experience, meaning that 
you might, like on Facebook, you might follow people, but Facebook is in the business of deciding for you what you want to see. And so they use algorithms to determine, oh, you seem to interact with this person a lot, so we're going to show you more of their stuff, and you and you don't see, you don't interact with this person as much, so we're going to show you less. Like Facebook does that, YouTube does that. Uh, I'm getting the impression from some angry people on Twitter that Twitter has made some motions in the past few days towards this. This is like an inevitable law of large media companies that they they want to switch from systems where you are telling them how you want to see things to systems where they are algorithmically determining for you what you're going to see. And so now when people log on to YouTube, there's the they have a I think it's called like what to watch. And that is YouTube's suggestions about what you want to see. I've got to say, though, that what to watch. I do watch a lot of videos that come from there. The algorithm does work. Like, I find lots of videos that I want to see from that suggestion. Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. YouTube has some incredibly smart people working on that algorithm have you heard of google (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like i'm not saying that it's bad at what it does i'm just saying it's a different system and i genuinely think that for something like youtube you can argue that it's a better system do i like it better as a creator no but does your average viewer probably watch more youtube because of their algorithmic system they have to i'd be shocked if if they don't Uh, YouTube is obsessed with this notion of watch time, like how much time do people spend on the site? And they dedicate enormous computing resources and A-B testing and all kinds of stuff to figure out like what videos keep people on the site longer. So I do not doubt in the slightest that it is effective. But because of that, the way I view the subscriber button now is... Not, oh, this person has subscribed to my channel and they will see every one of my videos. The subscriber button now is you sending a signal to the algorithm. And the algorithm is going to decide how important it considers that signal to be. And so, I mean, my guess is that when you see some really weird subscriber numbers like you said you do sometimes come across people who seem to have subscribers in the millions and view counts in like the tens or 20 of thousands and it, like what so like what is that like what's going on there and i think that's a case of the algorithm has decided that the people who have subscribed to this channel are not actually interested in seeing this channel's videos that's what's happening there that's why i put just very little mental emphasis now on those subscriber numbers like it's interesting i'm glad when it goes up uh it's notable when i cross a a big barrier but i used to be super obsessed with the subscriber numbers because it used to mean like when i press that publish button x number of people are going to see this as a new thing and now i know that when i press that button what really happens is almost certainly youtube just like facebook does 
is it like testing with a random subsection of the number of people who subscribe to me to see how many people click on it. And then based on that, it might recommend the video to a larger subsection of the number of people who subscribe to me. Like that's kind of what I presume is going on behind yeah. the background. And that's just a totally different feeling than like, man, when I press this button, two million people are going to see a thing. That's not what happens. And so it makes that two million number feel very different. Now it's almost like that number is an a theoretical upper threshold of market exposure, right? Like that's that's what the subscriber number is in some ways. So if the number's going up, it's an indication to you that there are more people to see it. Potentially to see it, yeah. But it's they, these things do not move in correlation to each other. They don't necessarily move in correlation to each other, no. Yeah. I, I can very easily imagine that the, that some channels would have a situation where people love to subscribe to that channel, but the algorithm consistently learns like, oh, okay, but they don't actually interact with the videos in the way that I expect. And so I just won't ever show them very many videos from this channel. Like other stuff will always take over. Because what it seem seeming to be coming clear to me is there doesn't really seem to be like a pointable threshold that you have to hit to hit a certain level. Like if you cross a million, then your views will will always be X. Like it, yeah. it doesn't feel like that. That makes any sense. It's just so confusing to me, because it must. I mean, is it worse? Do you know where the people are coming from? Like, I don't know what YouTube statistics are like. Like, do you know that like a lot of these people aren't subscribers, and you're actually getting a lot of like embed watches from whatever Daily Mail website or something? The YouTube analytics are pretty good. They, they give you some sense of if people are coming from external sites. Uh, there's always the issue of, of um, anyone who runs analytics programs knows that you have this this big catch-all category of like direct referrals where you have no idea like really where the person came from. You just know that they hit a URL that, that sent them there. Uh, you, YouTube does the best that it can. But I always, whenever I have a chance to talk to anybody who works at YouTube, I what I want to know is how many of my subscribers saw this on their screen when they went to the uh, what to watch section on YouTube, right? Like I want to know what percent of people were even exposed to this or what percent of my subscribers have asked for email alerts. That's the one number they don't want to give you. And I can totally understand from YouTube's perspective why they don't want to do that. They don't want channels, I imagine, being quite irritated to know like, what do you mean you only tested this with 1% of my audience and then sent it out to 5% of my audience because it didn't do very well? Like I think people would get quite angry about that uh if you know if that's what's going on i hear that stuff and it's like it makes me it makes my skin crawl well it makes your skin crawl because facebook's whole business model is putting those numbers right in your face <laughs> like when when i upload something on the cgp gray facebook page facebook is always like really happy to let you know like oh you have twenty thousand fans on facebook we sent this to a hundred of them would you like to pay us more money to send it to more of the people who are fans of your page <laughs> it's just because like i don't work in that world because i assume that maybe youtube is doing something like that as well right which is maybe right which is why you don't get all of the two million every time right yeah and and it's just the difference for me and, you know, with you with the, sh the podcast as well is that people that click the button to subscribe to our shows, they get every episode. Like, right. They choose whether they listen to it, but like it comes to them. Mm -hmm. And But then that's like the crazy thing to me. It's like, of course it does. You've you've shown the intention. You've, you've pressed the button 
and then it comes to you. Like there are just all these weird things that YouTube seems to do. Like sometimes I get push notifications uh, for people. Like oh, like I have a couple of channels that I like to get notified about when a new video posts. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I don't get those notifications. Right. It's like, and at that point, it's like, what are you doing? Like I've gone an extra step now in, mm-hmm. in trying to ensure that I see these videos but you're still not telling me about them that that one like i can't wrap my head around or there was this one time i think i I was looking for some pictures the other day and i came across it the other day i got this weird do you remember this i got this like really weird push notification where it was like see the latest from cgp gray and you hadn't uploaded it for like six weeks do you remember that oh yeah that's right that's right you just out of the blue got (laughs) got a push notification about check out cgp gray's latest video yeah because they're doing some kind of tests right yeah. That's my assumption here, right? Like you, you have just fallen into the random 5% that they're doing a test on. And that's why you got a push notification. That is like just the, the ongoing like weirdness of living inside of somebody else's system. Yeah. All yeah. of this is. And and this is part of like a broader statistics kind of discussion I wanted to talk to you about. Because there are some significant differences in the way that analytics and statistics work between the two businesses that you operate in, right? Yeah. The YouTube and podcasting. And one of the biggest ones is like the how public and private numbers are. Mm. So like with YouTube, you can't hide them. Like they are there. They're on the page. They're under the video. But in the podcasting world, they're not. And by and large, podcasters tend to keep their numbers private. They just don't talk about them. Mm. Uh, we don't share them and i don't really know why that is but because people tend not to nobody does yeah it's it's weird it's like every podcast feels like it's in some kind of poker game with all other podcasts like you've said your numbers on hello internet before and i nearly spat my tea out because not only they are massive but also it was the fact that you said them on the show i was like oh great you've broken the secret code yeah, people don't like to talk about numbers in the podcast world in a way that I find strange because, yes, I, I feel like I'm coming from this YouTube world and you actually, uh, I have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that in the option somewhere you can turn off the view numbers if you want to. Oh. But nobody does. Yeah, it's, it's the opposite of the private agreement. Everybody like is, is just agrees that they'll just show their numbers to everybody even more so it's a bit like when it's a bit like when people turn off comments on their videos the 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 problem is like oh you're one of those right like it's just (laughs) you think you're better than us huh oh you're such a delicate little flower like nobody else's thoughts can can approach you like you're just too you're separate from the rest of us taking away comments on youtube I almost always think is like a worse thing to do than just leave it open, right? Just leave it open because people hate it when you close the comments. Yeah. People just They'll find hate you. it. <laughs> yeah, they're going to find you. <laughs> and because you close those comments, like they're going to spend way more energy in trying to find you. So just leave it open. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just a funny cultural thing. I have only once seen someone do the no comments thing well, which was this uh, YouTube horror series called marble hornets which is a slender man like fan fiction horror series thing this is really is like an obscure corner of the internet here i've i don't understand any of the words but carry on <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna carry on carry slender on. man is like this internet monster and these bunch of guys were making like a little video that had slender man like uh 
hunting them down in every video, basically. And they were uploading them to YouTube. And they disabled comments for sure. And I think they disabled the ratings. And it was one of those things where it's like, oh, okay, you have made this experience feel different because I can't leave any feedback on this video. This video is just like this thing that exists here. And so then if I want to discuss this, I have to go somewhere else. And then it kind of fosters like all of these communities around those videos discussing what's going on. Ooh, I just Google image search Slenderman and I don't feel very comfortable anymore. Yeah, it's super creepy. Like, and I think it's it's one of those things where it's just like it's just all the wrong proportions to make you feel like, oh god, get this thing away from yeah, me. Yeah, I don't like but that. Anyway, that that I will list Marble Hornets as the only effective use I have ever seen of someone turning off the comments, and it was for a particular effect. Hmm. But if I ever saw someone who had like hidden the their view stats on YouTube, I feel like I'd never stop laughing at them. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's the way you're going to do this. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't really know why it started, like in the podcasting world. Um, and I think because it wasn't public, people mm-hmm. just didn't, you just, why would you talk about it? Yeah. So everybody now just doesn't talk about it. But you don't, obviously you don't care to share, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't really care. Because it's um, not, especially you and Brady, because you're both in the world of YouTube. It seems very natural just yeah. to talk about the numbers although again from my perspective i feel like the youtube analytics are crystal clear there's it's it's very obvious yeah. exactly how many people have watched your videos and precisely when they have stopped watching and all kinds of crazy informa- information like there's plenty of stuff to complain about youtube but they their analytics are beat by no one yeah whereas from my perspective the podcast analytics always seem like oh come on like these these crazy numbers that are hard to interpret and it feels like there's much more guesswork in the podcast world about how many people even listen uh because it's it's a bit of the reverse problem where like sometimes if someone subscribes to your podcast there can be a podcast player on their iphone which is downloading the episode diligently every week but the person never listens could be dead they could be dead with their iphone is still downloading your shows and then there's also just some weird stuff where i like i am convinced that podcast analytics don't capture people listening from the web in an accurate fashion so i always feel like the podcast stuff is just is just crazy it's just all over the place when people ask me about hello internet now i know i say it's like okay my 99 percent confidence interval is like okay we have 200,000 listeners plus or minus 50,000 listeners. That that plus or minus number makes me shudder. <laughs> I can't imagine that margin of error. I don't understand why it, it is the way it is. I think it's partly because we seem to have a huge number of people who listen on the web, as best analytics can tell. Like our show... It's not as big as Hello Internet. It's sizable. I'm not going to tell you what the numbers are. I was going to say, you're not going to discuss the numbers, No, Mike? I'm not going to talk about them. Why I can't gonna... do it. I can't why? Do it. I just can't do it. <laughs> you know why? You, want, you know what? You can't do it because you are from the podcast world. Yeah, exactly. That's I, can't, that. I can't talk about it. Uh, I'll be breaking the secret code. Um, but our numbers are sizable. They're, they're, they're very large. Mm-hmm. Um, and we... They're relatively stable. Like, they, they're going up, which is great. So thank you, everybody. Um, but they they don't differ by, like, twenty or 30,000 a week. Like, that doesn't happen. 
I mean, there have been times that that have happened, and and I'm continuing to try and build my case for the scheduling uh, <laughs> as the reason for this. Um, one day, I really hope that that you just test Hello Internet on a schedule, and then the variant stops, and then and then I win. Mm-hmm. Uh, but until that day, I'm going to carry on fighting the good fight. But yeah, that 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 fifty thousand swing, man. Yeah, that freaks me out. That would yeah. keep me up at night. You're <laughs> lucky you do YouTube videos. Yeah, but you see, the, the reason why I think I'm also very happy talking about these numbers is because a plus or minus 50,000, so a spread of 100,000, to me, a spread of 100,000 doesn't even register on YouTube scales. Exactly. Right? Like, that's, like, you know, YouTube scales is spreads of plus or minus 5 million. Yeah, if I if I had a comparative spread on a show, I would mm-hmm. honestly lose sleep at night about it. <laughs> I talk about these numbers and we talk about the subscribers on YouTube because this is one of those cases where I think you need to figure out what statistics really matter and what statistics don't. And I used to place a huge amount of importance on YouTube subscribers as a statistic that I followed. And now I don't. I, I, I hardly think about it. And quite frankly, the two million thing really snuck up on me. Uh, I made that video soliciting for questions entirely because I was like, oh, crap, if I don't do this right now, I'm going to miss the mark. And then I'm going to look like an idiot asking for questions afterward. Yep. <laughs> like it was just it just snuck up on me too fast. And, and then I have the same thing with the podcast, which is like there as well listens feels like a number that I should be obsessed with, but I just really don't think about it very much. Like I don't think those are necessarily I don't care to follow it on like a week to week basis. It's not something that I focus on. And I think it's very easy to get lost with following metrics that don't really directly impact anything. Like it's very easy for, and I, I don't know, I see people do this sometimes where like people are super obsessed with how many followers they have on Instagram or Snapchat or like whatever the newest social media thing is. And I always feel like, okay, okay but does that number translate to anything with your business? Like I can't imagine that it does. Um, and I even have data to back this up. Like I'm, I'm approaching 100,000 followers on Twitter. Are you? Yeah, it's like 93 oh. something now, I think. <laughs> Do you know what I just did? What? This this shows you that I'm not really in the, the, the right mental state. Mm-hmm. I just opened TweetBot to, to search for you, mm-hmm. to look at that. And in the search field, I typed the word Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm looking for at Twitter to see how many followers they have instead of CGP Grey. There we go. Back to full health. Mike's Mike's not fully back yet. (laughs) He's he's 60% of the way here, folks. Treat him gentle today in the comments. (laughs) So I want to mention this as a a thing, which is like people talk about, oh, it's really important to promote your business on social media. And I now find myself in the position that I have more followers on Twitter than most people who are trying to promote a business are going to have. But I like to do tests on Twitter with sometimes like track through URLs to see how many people click on a thing, how many people uh, like retweet this or whatever. And like I can tell you, even with a huge amount of followers, like the number of people who click on a URL is very small. I think people end up thinking a lot about visible statistics 
because they're visible and they're easy to track. I see people think, oh, how can I increase the number of people who follow me on Twitter or whatever? And like, okay, it's an easy thing to conceptualize, but I don't think it really matters in terms of promotion as much as you think it does. <laughs> With something like social media, the relevant question is, do you enjoy this? Like, are you having fun doing this? Mm-hmm. And, and if the answer is no, like, well, then this is not a super effective tool. And with a minimum amount of tracking, you can see very fast that that obsessing over these statistics is not going to help you at all. It just yeah. doesn't matter. Because trust me, a dude with 10 times as many followers on Twitter, if he tweets out your link, it's not actually that big of a deal almost all the time. Like, it just doesn't matter. I've definitely learned this over time. Like, if we have something, like if we're selling a t-shirt or whatever, if you tweet about it, you'll get some people, but you got to talk about it on the show. Like, that's how people find out about it. They're talking to, it's when they find out about it from the show. That's where the actual audience is. Yeah. And it's like, you know, comparing the amount of Twitter followers I have to listeners that we have, like, it very rarely even nearly matches up mm-hmm. in it, either up or down. Like, it just doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Yeah. Like, a lot of this stuff, it's like, they're just a bunch of different numbers. And I look at a lot of different numbers and just see how they move. Mm-hmm. But there's no way to, to to correlate a lot of these things together. And I think that's the one of the key things that you learn after doing something like this for a while is that you just want to see the numbers moving in right. one direction. And that will help you know something. But yeah. there's no way that you can say, and it goes all the way back to what we are talking about right at the start of this conversation, that those subscriber numbers mean you're going to get that amount of video views. Because it just doesn't mean that. Yeah, I am a firm, firm believer in trends over absolute value. Yes, that when you when you realize that, and you have to kind of go through a, a, a period of time of obsessing about statistics before you realize that the value is in trends. Mm-hmm. I used to put a lot more emotion i think into statistics than i do now have you ever really felt that way like have you ever looked at the numbers and and like really obsessed about them and thought like this means it's good this means it's bad no not in terms of video views or anything like that because uh i just feel like i have grown up so stewed in internet culture that i am very aware that Effort and quality are not necessarily related in terms of success in the way that people might want them to be. That is so nicely put. I have never had that feeling. And sometimes I've been in a few situations where I feel like I'm talking someone down from a cliff when they have a, a thing that is very high quality but just isn't mm-hmm. catching on for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, but that's not how this works. It's like, yes, you might have put 100 hours into this thing, but... That doesn't mean that it's going to be super viral on the internet. Like, it's just, that's just not how it works. Nope. It, it's never worked like that. It will never work like that. But people want it to as soon as they get into the game of, of making stuff. However, the only time I was super obsessed with statistics, as I mentioned before, is when I was trying to switch to YouTube full time. And then I had a spreadsheet that was tracking progress to 200,000 subscribers that I filled out and looked at every day and was looking at the numbers and the projections for how long is it going to take to hit this number. Like then I was super obsessed, but it's because I had a goal 
And I had a day by which I had to hit that goal. Otherwise, I was going to be teaching for another year. So then I was super obsessed. But Mm. after that, like I have a whole lot of spreadsheets that track a whole lot of things. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Which might be a surprise to some listeners. I would never have guessed. And I do track things, but now it's almost entirely on a monthly basis. That when a new month rolls around, there's a bunch of things that I do. And one of those things is I update some of the spreadsheets. And I like to look at a lot of the stuff in my business on a 12 or 24 month average rolling time frame. That's a big time frame. It's a big time frame, but it's the only way to smooth out something as irregular as the YouTube channel. Yeah. Right, because since some months I upload, other months I don't upload, sometimes the summer goes by and there's nothing. Like there's I have to average out something like the revenue on that business over a twenty four month time frame. Because otherwise the the numbers are just crazy. Uh like it's just because the, the differences between a month where I do something and the and a month where I don't are enormous. Yeah, I feel like I check um our statistics on a on a kind of a less regimented basis so mm-hmm. i check every show once a month to just plot them into a spreadsheet um and there are some shows where i check them more frequently mm-hmm. and and it's not i don't feel like i obsess on them i just look at them and go okay like we're we're tracking yeah but i used to like really fret over them why did you fret this was this was a lot earlier in me doing this this was before relay Mm-hmm. Um, I I used to check the numbers like multiple times a day of my shows. See that? Yeah, that is fretting. That is definitely yeah. and fretting. and it was really because I used to to kind of equate a lot more to like this was in the desperation phase for me, right? Mm-hmm. The same as how you were in that phase leading up to leaving teaching. Mm-hmm. I really equated like when the numbers hit X, I will be able to finally leave my job. Mm-hmm. Although. For me, I had no way of controlling it. It was like a purely mental thing. Um, I, I hadn't done the work to actually know what numbers I needed. <laughs> and it really wasn't until I could have my own business before I could ever do it anyway. Like the numbers were never going to make sense because I could never control it, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I used to check it a lot more obsessively. Um, and, and I was able to get myself out of it by thinking about it slightly differently. And, and there's this... There's this talk that, that I listen to maybe once every year or two, and it's by uh, Merlin Mann and John Gruber. And they, they gave this talk at South by Southwest in like 2004. Mm-hmm. And they talk a lot about this type of stuff, like who are you making for? And what I eventually was able to transition myself into is when I make these things and create these things, I try to make them good for people that I imagine in my mind, um, like specific people. Like, is this person going to like this? And and when I was able to kind of work to that, it helped me stop thinking about the numbers so much. I wasn't thinking about the masses of people. I was trying to right. think of specific people that might enjoy it. My probably top favorite writing book is On Writing by Stephen King, mm-hmm. which uh, is a little bit difficult to recommend because you need to have already read a lot of Stephen King books to get the most out of that. They talk a lot about that book in that talk. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, because that matches up with his notion of the ideal reader. He talks about in that writing books for his wife, as opposed to writing books for millions of readers. That that's Mm -hmm. a much easier thing to think about and also changes the way that that you create things. I think there's definitely value in that 
notion because you know if if you're trying to think about the audience as a whole it's like okay well guess what the audience as a whole has no personality and the audience as a whole some people are always going to love the thing that you just made and some people are always going to hate it like there's no there's no direction to be derived from this mm-hmm. thing people are always going to sit at the polar ends right well at least they're the ones you can hear from all of this comes down to i think trying to figure out like what is it that actually matters for tracking in your business and the lessons here are there's tons of stuff that's easy to track that is totally pointless in tracking (laughs) yeah all the stuff that's really easy to get numbers on it's mainly the stuff you don't need (laughs) yeah i think there actually might be a direct relationship with that right like that the easier it is to track yeah the the less useful it is (laughs) if you run a business almost certainly one of the most important things to track is revenue and so lots of my spreadsheets are various things related to income and money flow and income diversity which is a thing we should talk about uh, at another time not now but like so like that's what i track and that's i I track it over a long time and i want to just see the trends like i don't really care about the absolute value but i just want to see like are these numbers going up okay that's great things are fine if the numbers start going down then i need to start thinking about changing stuff around But going to this notion of sometimes the most important things are the hardest things to track is I'm really aware, like with Hello Internet, that we have a big audience, but there's also some kind of crazy variance in the individual shows that I I just cannot figure out. With Hello Internet, I think one of the most important things to me to be aware of is impossible to track directly. And it's how interested are the advertisers in buying more spots? That's not a number that I can put on a spreadsheet, but it's a thing that I am aware of, which is like, okay, we have this audience. It's wildly variant, but I know that advertisers want to buy more ads than we want to sell them right away. Because there's a funny thing in that the numbers don't actually dictate that. I have some particular theories about like why I think it seems like advertisers get a good response from that show yeah i i feel like i know it but we'll save that for another time we'll save that for another time i I have my own theories but but that is a perfect example of like there's nothing i can put on a spreadsheet to directly track like this advertiser response but i just know that when advertisers go on that show they are very happy and then advertisers want to block out a whole year and we find ourselves in these conversations like no we will not sell you a whole year's worth of advertising in advance and like that's a great thing that's super important but that is impossible to track in a in a statistically significant way but it is probably one of the most important things that i'm just aware of like this is a good thing one of the hardest things about tracking that as well is there are factors that have nothing to do with you that you don't know yeah yeah there's so much that's just out of your control like budgets yeah you have no idea what's happening in those companies budgets like you might have a a company that has bought your show every episode for four years then they stop you think it's you but they just went out of business (laughs) nothing to do with you man yeah this is something that as i have uh, been more and more in the business of the podcasting world i have discovered the seasonality of corporate budgets and the importance of quarters right? oh, when a new God. year rolls around it's to me it's just so, like again coming from the youtube world where none of this stuff matters that like youtube just handles all of it for you uh, i'm just so aware of of like the annual cycle and corporate 
budgets for advertising for yeah, podcasts. Yeah, I kind of so got strange. my head around quarters. I'm getting <laughs> now starting to understand annual a little bit more as well. Yeah, but it's funny to find myself having conversations where I feel like the douchiest business person in the world, where I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, we can revisit that in Q3. Let's touch base uh, in the next quarter, yeah. Gray. I cannot believe I say things we like can, that. We can circle back in Q4. Yeah, what have I become? Today's episode of Cortex is also brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get for a fraction of the price that you'll find in mattress stores. The mattress industry is a really weird one. Uh, you, for a long time, people have been forced into paying high prices and having a weird experience to go and buy these mattresses. You go to a dealer, they put the prices up, of course, right? Because you've got to have a middleman in the middle of it all. Uh, but also going into these showrooms, sitting on beds and seeing if it's right for you for like 20 seconds and then sleeping on it for the next 10 years, that doesn't make any sense. And this is what Casper is here to fix. Not only did they make an incredible high-quality mattress that provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. They do it at a, in a great way at a great price. Casper's mattresses are one of a kind. They have a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. These two technologies come together for better nights and brighter days. It has just the right sink and just the right bounce. It is obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. Usually mattresses will cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin size, $750 for a full size, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. And all Casper mattresses are made in America. Casper understands that buying a mattress online can leave people wondering... How is this possible? And can raise a few questions. Well, they do all of this very simply by making it completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. You sleep on the bed. You actually sleep on it in your home, in your own pajamas, with your own bedding, and you will decide if it's right for you. If you don't like it, you have 100 days in which you can return it. Casper will pick it up for you. It is all done for free. They're shipped to you in a fantastic box. Opening them is an experience all of its own. Casper mattresses are really special um, and they are absolutely fantastic. You should try them out for yourself. And the best way to do that is to go to casper.com slash cortex. You can find out more information there, but you'll also get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting that URL. It's casper.com slash cortex and use the code cortex at check out terms and conditions apply please see casper.com slash cortex for details thank you so much to casper for their support of this show and relay fm all right so talking about millions of views there was this whole hubbub uh in the youtube world which is so funny that i kind of sit on the very sidelines now so like i see these start these things start to pop into my life a little bit more youtube drama yeah yeah (laughs) and and a lot of my friends found out about this because of you Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have found out about it if it wasn't for you. And it's this whole thing about React videos, and I don't want to get into the whole business of it. I am assuming you and Brady will probably talk about this at some point, maybe. Um, but I'll put some links in the show notes to people if they want to find out exactly what is going on or had yeah. gone on with this. Here's here's the thumbnail sketch for anyone who's just listening now. There's no idea what Mike is talking about. Yeah, Basically, two... Very popular YouTubers put out two videos that were hilariously tone deaf and super corporate. And the YouTube world reacted very, very poorly to these. 
And lots of people were putting out videos complaining about what they had done or the way they had done it. It was kind of a big pile on. And I came to this very late. But as soon as I saw those two videos, I was like, I cannot not make my own videos about this. Right. And so I did. Yes. Uh, in an evening that will go down in history, I think, for CGP Grey, <laughs> it's one of the most, like, out-of-character days I've I've seen from you. You always say this about things being out-of-character. Yes, but they're in your... If they're you, they're in okay, your character. I do it, blah, 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 yes. Blah, I get it, but... <laughs> Okay, you adapted your character that day. No, or, this was just right. waiting to happen. Yes, okay. It was yes, only a matter of time. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But the reason I wanted to bring this up is that how long did it take you to create these two videos? Okay, so I went back and took a look uh, at the files, like when did the file creation time happen? Because I, I was curious to know myself. And essentially these two videos together to make both of them took me less than 40 minutes to make from start to finish. All right. As we sit here today, they're about a week old and have accumulated together close to 2 million views, right? (laughs) Making this the single most profitable 40 minutes of your entire life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is quite probable that that is the most money I will ever make per hour uh, of anything that I've ever done now or in the future. Right. Because <laughs> it's just so little time. <laughs> As a man of tracking statistics, a man of tracking uh, all of this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you've got to have some kind of opinion about this. Like, what does this say? Like, why? What does this say to you? Well, there's not always going to be things that you do this stuff with. Right? And it is kind of funny that you made some reaction videos and they were really popular. It's quite ironic in the the whole scheme of things. Yeah. I think this is part of the statistics conversation because I think it's really important for people to be aware that statistics are just not everything. And so if if I was just an absolute cold blooded businessman who only cared about the money, obviously I should get into the snarky reaction video business. Yeah. Right? And this is not an exaggeration. I could probably 10x revenue if I did so. Right? At least at least 10x per hour. Um, <laughs> yeah. beca- because it, it's these videos took no effort to do Everybody loves a good bit of drama and a good bit of an internet fight. It's <laughs> like, internet fight, everybody comes along, right? And they want to see what everybody has to say about what's going on. Like, these are very popular things. There are always enough internet fights to get involved in to sustain a business. Yeah, th- I mean, the thing is, there's this whole like, bizarre, funny subsection of YouTube that I mostly stay away from that is entirely devoted to YouTube drama. And then, of course... Everybody knows, like a pack of drama llamas, like they just draw more drama llamas, like, and it brings its own energy and audience, and like these things feed on themselves. So there is a whole economy built around this kind of stuff. 
and it's hugely popular. <laughs> like it's just crazy. And that's that's partly what what these videos like stumbled upon a little bit. It was like, okay, oh, CGP Grey got in on the action too, and everybody watches the video. So yeah, so like from a business perspective, it, it's like stupid not to make more of these. But this is but this is where, as I always said, like I am trying to build a life that I want to live. I'm not trying to make a company that maximizes revenue under all circumstances all the time. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I don't want to make reaction videos all the time. I don't want to follow YouTube drama. Like, I just don't care. I don't care almost all of the time. And yeah, this stuff would be really easy to make. Yeah, it would probably be pretty popular. But it's it's not something that I want to do. And this is... This is, again, those moments where there's a kind of conflict between the CEO of Gray Incorporated and the employee of Gray Incorporated. But since I'm the same person, I can and do make decisions that are terrible business-wise, but that are great personal life-wise. And I think it's, it's incredibly important to be conscious of that kind of thing, like to be aware of... Don't make business decisions that you won't be happy with. Like, I would just, I would hate doing nothing but this. Now, might I make one again in the future? I don't know. Maybe if another (laughs) perfect storm like this that is just irresistible comes along. But I'm not starting, you know, CGP reacts. It's just not a thing that I'm going to do. It's not a thing that I have any interest in doing. Like, I, I like making the kinds of videos that I make. I like making videos on topics that are of interest to me. And I am just such a lucky bastard that there is a large enough audience of people who are interested in the kinds of things that I make that I can do this for a living. It's There's no reason that that should be, but it happens to be. And I am the lucky benefactor of that. But, you know, you can and people do strategically go after big popular audiences of stuff well people have different goals like it's the same thing for me like there is a there is a style of podcasting that seems to be extremely popular which basically sounds like it's made by public radio (laughs) all right yeah the npr podcasts yeah and the gimlet podcasts which all sound the same yeah and I've dabbled in some stuff which is stylistically close to it, but mm. we I could try and go further in that direction. I could try more and more projects, but it doesn't interest me as much as the stuff that I do. The people talking thing. That's yeah. the stuff that I like. It's the stuff that we make. It's the stuff that we commission. Like This is my thing that I enjoy. Like This is what I like to do. I'm, again consider myself a very very lucky person that i get to make what i like to make and people like to listen to it and i get paid to do it and that's awesome that's how i feel there are people that feel differently but they're just motivated by different things right it's not wrong it's just motivated differently like me and you are motivated to do the type of thing that we like because it makes us happy but for some people they just want to make the most money they can make and mm-hmm. what that means is creating videos talking about people fighting mm-hmm. but the thing is the reason they make money is because people like to to watch those things they enjoy them oh yeah an internet fight done right 
is fun. Yeah. <laughs> there's no there's no way around it. Like it just it plugs into something that humans like. I, I always want to be clear. Like I'm never quite poo-pooing people enjoying other kinds of content because I think that's a kind of thing that you can't really control like it's just whether your brain reacts to it or it doesn't <laughs> like whatever i don't know i sometimes get into arguments with people when they say things like oh there's so much garbage on youtube and it's like but is it popular like then tons of people like it you know i like who and who are you to say like oh everybody should be watching masterpiece theater right like well <laughs> should they should they always like i don't watch masterpiece theater all day long uh it's yeah, like, i like gossip and fighting as much as the next person <laughs> yeah who doesn't <laughs> and it's nice that there's a place for it i just don't feel like i need to be the person to make it a- another youtube version of this is yeah, from my perspective just low effort list videos just like lists do really well on websites lists do really well in video format and it's not like it's not like i'd never do a list it's not that i don't think lists can't be done well but i know i know that i almost certainly could have videos that were way more popular that are way easier to make if i just said ah fuck it i'm making lists i'm making lists from now on here we go <laughs> right 10 amazing places you've never heard of. Seven things your body does you won't believe, right? And it's like, <laughs> it's stuff's really easy to do. It's like, it's it's not hard. Um, and the, <laughs> the siren song of it is it's not hard and it almost certainly would be very popular, <laughs> way more popular than what I'm doing now. But I also know, like, I, I just don't want to make those. That That's not a thing that I want to do. And... Yeah, the business would love it, but I would not. I would not love that. And so you just have to be careful. Like like I said before, you know, I keep track of these these graphs of like business revenue over time. And like at some point, these graphs are going to level off. Right? It's just, just like at some point, YouTube subscriber numbers will level off because there are only so many people in the world. Right. Like there's only so much value that I can create in a day, in an hour. But when I come to those points, like I know and I'm very comfortable with the idea of like, oh, OK, revenues leveled off. Viewers are le- have leveled off. I am going to be totally fine continuing to do what I do. And I'm not going to feel like, oh, I need to start going after list videos and reaction videos and all this other stuff to keep this graph going up, because this is the huge benefit of working for yourself. I am not a public company. I do not need to keep growing forever. This is not one of my goals. And it is very, very important to keep that in front of mind. Like, yes, I have all of these spreadsheets, but these spreadsheets are not the measure of success. Like, I view the measure of success as having control over my life and being able to work on the things that interest me. And... I know for a fact that the opportunity cost of that decision is enormous. Like I, I can put, I can put ballpark figures on just how enormous that opportunity cost is, and it's it is breathtaking. Because I don't know, it's just like I see these comments sometimes, right? Where it's like I have advertisements at the end of some of my YouTube videos now. Like I've done Audible ads, I've done Squarespace ads. And you know, maybe someday we can talk about why that's the case. Actually, it might be good for the diversity episode. Um, but sometimes I'll see p- comments from people who are like, oh, what a sellout. Like, I can't believe it. Look at that. This guy put an audible ad for Guns, Germs, and Steel at the end of his America Pox video. What a total sellout. 
I always kind of laugh at those because it's like, dude, when I sell out, you will know. Yep. <laughs> like, it's, yep. like, I don't think you have any idea the kind of offers that come across the table of someone who consistently gets millions of views on YouTube. <laughs> like, I say no to tons of things that would make me a lot of money for very little effort because I don't think that they're good decisions in the long term and because I think that they would make me unhappy to do. I've said no to a lot of stuff and it was a little bit harder in the beginning uh, because you feel like, am I an idiot? <laughs> Trust me, sometimes there are offers that come along where it's like, hi, we're a gigantic car company. We will pay you an enormous amount of money to make a video about our car. And it's like, oh God, I'm going to say no to this. Like that is a huge check, uh, but I am going to say no. But I am going to wonder for a day or so, like, am I an idiot? <laughs> am I just a moron? Hi, I'm CGP Gray, and I'm here to tell you about why this new Ford car is amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what you get pitched sometimes. Yeah, I mean, when people see that video, that's when they'll know that you're yeah. done. Yeah, that's, right? that's when it won't be like, oh, Swan he's song. sold out. <laughs> right? Like, you'll know. It's fine. And, you know, everybody does have their price, right? But, like, my, my price is at this stage is like, can you pay me enough so that I never have to work again and can live a life of luxury? Then I will do your car company commercial. Like, then that's fine. Then we can, then we can have a discussion maybe. But it's just... It's so important, especially if you are the only person in your business, that you have to balance all this stuff of like, not only what will make me money, but like, what will I also fee feel okay doing? I don't think I've told this story before, but the hardest decision like this that I ever had actually came literally the week after I had quit teaching. So I was brand new just on my own, uh, self-employed for the first time. And as you are in that situation, terrified that you might have made the worst decision of your life. A, a little desperate too, right? Yeah. You feel like you're really... You're suddenly living on the edge. Yeah. Right? You don't know where money's coming from. And it's this moment of like, oh God, my own life is in my own hands. Like I might have just totally messed this up. Yep. Uh, and in particular, for uh, reasons I've alluded to in the past, like I also, in the process of leaving teaching, like might have totally screwed myself out of being able to get another teaching job. But that's a that's on the side there. <laughs> but so uh, the week after I quit my teaching job, I had a phone call with someone from a large publishing company. And <laughs> they had this offer for me which basically went like this we will write you a check that is more money than you have made in the last four years right now if we can use your name on a book about fun history facts that you won't write but that we will sell and you just mention it on your YouTube channel that there's like CGP Grey's fun history facts book that this oh, exists. God. Feels like a golden goose, right? At that stage, like where you are, 
Like, that's your security for the next four years. That's exactly what it was, right? It's like someone someone is going to hand you peace of mind, just the biggest <sighs> safety net for the next several years. The only thing you have to do is sell your name. And it was one of these things like, man, did I get in some arguments with some people about this because I didn't like that deal. Why? Like, I, I didn't like the deal because I didn't, I thought, man, I don't want to have my name on some ghost written thing forever. This is one of these things with, with business, like how much of an incentive do they have to make this amazing? I imagine not a huge incentive because what they're banking on. So you would have gotten no say in the book at all. Yeah. What they're banking on is like, oh, here is a guy who has a big audience of enthusiastic followers and we're going to make more money off of all of these people buying the first thing that he has made than the size of this check that we're going to write. And we're just going to hire some ghostwriters to just churn this thing out in a weekend. I don't remember the details now, but they had some hilariously fast time frame. Right, which is just, again, indicates like, okay, well, you're not going to make a great book here. It may have been written already. Right? Yeah. Like, they just needed to make a cover. It very well may have been the case that this was something from some other aborted project that they were just trying to figure out. What it to was do written, and they were just waiting until some person said, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You may have been the third person, right? Yeah, yeah you never know. You never know with this stuff. That was the hardest business decision I think I have ever made because I was in the absolute worst negotiating position. Yep. It was the thing that I needed most at that time, yep. a shocking amount of financial security. But I did I did say no and and like I was saying like I got into arguments with people and the universal wall of consensus was you're a moron for not taking this. <laughs> like what are, what are you what are you even debating? But sitting here now, I am so glad that I didn't do that, that I don't have some kind of albatross around my neck. You would never get over it. Like, yeah. The, the way that I know you, that would always bother you. Always. Yeah. And I feel that same way about some of the things that come to me as business deals for the YouTube channel. It's like, I don't want to make a video that somebody else is just paying me to make that I have no interest in. Because the check was really big. <laughs> Again, it's like sometimes you feel really dumb turning down these things, but it it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that like again, as a one person business, like I have to live with the thing that I am doing. And if there's a really terrible book with my name on it, I want to have written that terrible book, right? I want to be able to look at that and go, wow, that was my fault. I did a terrible job on that. At least I tried. Right. But it was me doing it. What I don't want is something where, like, I have sold my name to be used on a thing and it's terrible. It's like, oh, okay, that's awful. That's absolutely awful now. And then, in addition, the feeling of, like, kind of having tricked my audience into making a purchase mm -hmm. that I had nothing to do with. Like, man, none, none of this do I like. I like none of it, but... That's why, you know, just like this, these, uh, these surprisingly popular React videos, it's like you can't use just 
the metrics to make all of the decisions. <laughs> like those React videos were fun to make. Maybe I'll do something like that again in the future, but I'm not going to chase that career. And yeah, sometimes I get offers from companies that on a pure return on investment basis are like great deals, but it's you can't evaluate everything in that way, even if that's what you're using to track some of the data in your life. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Igloo, the intranet you will actually like. Not the internet. You already like the internet. Everybody likes the internet. But your intranet, you probably hate it. You're at some company and the internal intranet is just a nightmare to work with. I know all the intranets that I've ever had to work with. Uh, they were horrible. I hated them. They were old. They were clunky. They were conflicts all the time. It was just a big, just a big problem, but not with Igloo. Igloo allows you to make your intranet feel like a place that you actually want to work. It's surprisingly configurable and you can completely rebrand it to give it the look and feel of your team or company. Thanks to group spaces, role-based access permissions, and easy-to-drag-and-drop widget editors, you can make the whole intranet work exactly the way your team needs it to. You can share files with your coworkers. You can all collaborate on the same documents. You can use read receipts to see who's seen what for tracking important information. It's just way simpler and way more powerful than the internet at the company that you are probably using right now. So it's time to break away from that internet you hate. If you are the IT guy at your company who's in charge of setting up these intranets, check out Igloo. If you're an employee, have a little chat with the IT guy. Tell him Cortex sent you. So go and sign up for Igloo right now at igloosoftware.com slash Cortex. You can try it for free, and for any team with up to 10 people, you can use it for free as long as you want. You really have nothing to lose. Once again, that's igloosoftware.com slash Cortex. Thank you so much to Igloo for supporting Cortex and all of Relay FM. All right, Mike. There's a thing I want to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. And it's a thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about so much that, contrary to my normal character, I was trying to convince you a while back to record an emergency episode yeah. of Cortex. <laughs> That's how much I wanted to talk about this. I have an iMessage from you, which I, th- I feel like I need to frame and send back to you, uh-huh. uh, where, you were, where you were basically asking me to do more work and I was telling you no. <laughs> this might be the only time in the history of our working collaboration together or ever in the future but yes i was like okay we need to record an emergency episode uh because i feel incredibly strongly about a thing and i and i need to get this out there but obviously here we are now dear listener mike uh wouldn't do an emergency cortex and so now this is in the regular show where do we begin this story of woe, Mike? It has been well documented that myself and Gray love our iPad Pros. Yes. It is further documented that we love to use our Apple Pencils with them. Hmm. From drawing with them, but also to use them like pen tablets to interact with them, to mm-hmm. tap things, to scroll things. Because it's nice. If it's already in your hand, great. You can just use it like your finger. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, Apple have in both developer and public beta, uh, iOS 9.3. I'm getting too old to install betas. 
right? Like, I'm an old man now. Like, I ain't got time for this kind of young man's game of installing betas on your main machines. <laughs> oh, yeah. However, however, the night shift feature in 9.3 was one of those things that I was intensely interested in. I wanted to see how it worked. No one else can show you screenshots or pictures. You have to see it in person. Yep. And so I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> let me come out of retirement, right, and install a beta <laughs> on my main machine every time i get out they pull me right back in (laughs) exactly exactly it's always going to be something like this but you know this time this time it's this one uh and i really do mean that like my ipad pro is without doubt my main machine by miles it's got to be the thing that i am doing 90 percent of all of my computing on including my iphone same same so I, I installed this and I was like, oh, wow, Night Shift, this is great. And I was using the, the iPad to just read some stuff. And I, I was like, oh, what I really want to see is how this works uh, with iBooks at night. I open up iBooks and I have the pencil in my hand, as I always do. And I go to turn the page in iBooks. I'm like, oh, that's weird. The page doesn't turn with the pencil anymore. Like, oh, as well, oh, of course, this is why, like, it's a beta, it's a bug. And I keep using the iPad and, and I'm in Safari. I'm like, huh. The, the web page isn't scrolling when I go to use this pencil to scroll in Safari. Like, that's weird. And then I opened a share sheet in uh, GoodNotes, which is my handwriting application of choice. And I wanted to scroll horizontally there to get to a different icon to send a PDF to. I'm like, that's weird. It doesn't work here either. So, uh, of course, like a diligent little person, I too filed one of the little feedback things. Like, they, ha- they, they have that little application mm-hmm. that you can use. So I open it up and I was like, oh, hey, just thought you guys would like to know. Like, there's a weird bug that I can imagine you might miss where it's like in iBooks and in share sheets, it doesn't scroll properly when you use the pencil. I didn't really think anything about it until the second developer beta comes out and nothing has changed. And then the second public beta came out and nothing had changed. And that's when I started to worry because that's when it feels like this isn't a bug. This is a decision. My concern currently is that we have made this bed for ourselves. What do you mean? I think that when Apple introduced the pencil, it worked the way it did because they didn't really think about it. They created a device that allows you to manipulate iOS like a finger would just because it recognizes touch. Mm-hmm. So it's just it is what it is. And inside of application stuff, it scrolls UI just because it does. Like they didn't really think about it. I think when they saw... My feeling is when they saw people like me and you, and not necessarily me and you, but, you know, uh, using the iPad like a pen tablet and using the pencil like a stylus, Mm -hmm. they decided that that wasn't right for our iPad and have removed the function. That's what I think's happened here. Yeah, this is what I am deeply, deeply worried about because... There are these certain things that Apple does which just feel super Apple-y. Yep. And something about deciding that thou shan't use the pencil as you would use a Wacom tablet, like this is an Apple decision. Yep. This is not how we want people using our amazing pencil that is for artists only to be sketching in a museum in a way that we can film for an Apple commercial. Like, this is the only thing we want you doing with this, and we don't want you using it any other way. It just, it feels like the kind of thing that Apple might decide. 
And I have never, ever been more upset about any decision Apple has made than this one. Again, assuming that it is a decision. Because, I mean, look, we've talked about it before on this podcast, right? I am a person who has had repetitive strain injuries in my hands for, I mean, since college going on 15 years now. This is a thing that I can live with because it's a thing that I manage. And in the course of those 15 years, without a doubt, the number one most effective tool for reducing RSI has been using a pen tablet for the vast majority of my computer interactions. We just discussed it last time, like the very excellent uh, Wacom Intuos tablet, right? Which is now sitting on my desk, which is an amazing piece of hardware that I can use to manipulate all parts of the computer. Wacom doesn't say, oh, oh, you can only use our pen tablet for drawing. Wacom says, no, you can use scroll bars. You can scroll up and down a web page because it would be crazy to make you say on a desktop computer pick up a mouse like oh no you can only you can only interact with web pages if you're using a mouse i mean we we when we talked about it on the episode of um of cortex which i believe was brick of obligation is where i first talked about having the ipad pro and having this star trek vision of the future for how people work with multiple screens on a flat table And it is really interesting to me that since getting the Pro, since getting the Pencil, my life has become so close to this. Uh, You know, we may discuss it next time, but like I happen to have been traveling for the past two weeks. Almost exclusively, I've been using my iPad Pro flat on a table with my iPhone. This is how I do almost all of my work. Uh, I saw my my wife. Uh, She actually borrowed before I left my iPad Pro to do some, some research for traveling. And she was sitting at a table with her with my iPad Pro, with her mini and with her phone, like arranging a whole bunch of stuff like this multiple screen thing is obviously the future of computing, I think, for almost everybody. Right. Like just you have pieces of paper on a desk. You're going to have a bunch of screens on a desk like that's just the way it's going to go, because eventually they're going to be that thin as well. Yeah, they're going to be that thin. They're going to be that cheap. And when I have conversations with people about this now, they laugh at me and they go like, what are you crazy working on multiple iPads? Like that's dumb. It's like, but look at how many business people have multiple pieces of paper on a desk. Like it's just going to happen. But my one big concern about this prior to the pro is that manipulating these screens with your hands in what I always think of as finger painting position, right? Like you are doing finger paints, which is, extending your fingers out, holding your hand in this horizontal position, it's not comfortable to do all day long. And as someone who has been very aware of RSI issues, I'm very conscious of listening to my hands and seeing if I'm getting any kind of feedback about, is this a potential for repetitive strain? And I am totally aware that if you want to use iPads all day long, I can get repetitive strain injury from that. I have gotten repetitive strain injury from using iPads in this position. Now, some people go, I use iPads all day and I never have a problem. Like, that's great. I'm happy for you. But not everybody falls into this category. And so when the pencil came, it was just amazing to me because I thought, wow, I am looking at the next 10 years of my computing life. I can use a precision pointing tool 
to interact with a flat screen on a desk in a maximally comfortable way, in a way that I can do for 12 hours in a row without any problems. And I know because I have been doing that because I was so upset by what is happening with the betas. Like I went through all the trouble of rolling back my iPad because I thought, man, I can't, I can't use the iPad in this hybrid way of like trying to switch back and forth between using the pen and then putting it down or trying to awkwardly like with my ring finger scroll things on the screen while still holding the pen. Like it's just an awful, awful experience. And I am really worried that if this is the decision that Apple has made, what I am looking at is the future of my computing experience. And the future of the computing experience for anybody who has RSI problems or just hand manipulation problems being artificially crippled because someone at Apple doesn't want people to use iPads in this way. That's what I am just so worried about. The thing that annoys me the most about all of this is if you didn't want it to do this, you could have just done this from the start. Yeah, you should have done this from the start. Yeah, because you've given it and now you are taking it away. Yeah, right. I'm sitting here like almost trembling with like fury and upsetness over this because like you gave me a taste of the computing future that I always want that I need. And now you are taking it away just because and this wouldn't be the first time that Apple's done something like this. What this kind of reminds me of is the whole kerfuffle that happened over with uh the today view on iPhones when they first came out. And that was a case of like, okay, Apple allowed people to put things into this notification center and everybody was calling them widgets and like, oh, let me build all these neat things for the widgets. But Apple clearly had some idea of like, no, this is the today view. We only want you to use it to quickly access information about today. You should look at your calendar and you should check the weather here. But if you want to put a calculator in here, no, 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 that's not how we envision you doing this thing. And like they've eventually like seeded the ground on that, but it was a weird time where Apple was just... They had some idea about how they want you to do things. And it's like, okay, Apple, that's great. But if you give people tools, they're going to come up with better ways to use them than you can think of every possible way to use the thing. And I feel like this is the same case with the pencil. Like someone has an idea of how they want people to use the pencil, but people like me, and I've been speaking to other people who use the pencil, they want to use it like it's a Wacom tablet. And I think being able to use it like it's a Wacom tablet is way more powerful than what Apple had envisioned for the pencil. And they should roll with it. Like, go with this, Apple. This is good for you. This is good for the users. Don't artificially limit this because it's not how you envision people using your pretty tablet. Why the f*** do I have to use my finger? Yeah. Why does it have to be my finger? Yeah. Like, I don't understand. Like, my think my thinking about this, so try and rationalize it. I'm assuming that they have something else that they want to do with it, right? Mm-hmm. That this doesn't allow. And if that's the case, I can understand it if they tell me. Because all I know right now is this is how it is. Now, there is a, as we stand right now, there is a strong potential that 9.3 will be released with the iPad Air 3 which Mm -hmm. will also support the pencil. 
So there might be more functionality coming to the Apple Pencil, which could explain why this is the case. If that is the case, whilst I won't be happy with it, I'll be more willing to accept it. But if the reasoning is purely what me and you feel right now, I consider it unacceptable. Right? I mean, look, I cannot imagine a use case that would justify this decision. No, neither can I. But it's like, if they have a, if they have a reason, it's something they want to do, I can at least see their thinking. Right now, it just looks like they're just being petty. Yeah. I mean, we, we discussed uh, on one of the previous episodes how the pencil doesn't allow you to operate what I think of as the meta user interface, which yeah. is opening up split view, pulling down notification center, opening up control center. And we discussed on that episode, oh, that's kind of weird at first, but you can immediately see why. That if you want to do edge swipe gestures with the pencil, you can't also have it um, activating the, that meta interface. Right? Just It just won't work. So it's like, okay, I can understand that. If you have a drawing program, you want to be able to draw in from the edge. But if I'm on a web page and I want to use the Apple Pencil to scroll that web page, what the f*** else would I be doing with that pencil on that web page? Yeah, I don't right? know. Right? Like, why do you just say, no, you're not allowed to do that? Uh, like, the, here's the feeling that I have from that is when I was running the beta, every time I tried to scroll something, I thought the iPad might as well just make an angry buzzing noise, right? Like that little sound that the yeah. Mac does when it does something you don't like, it goes. <laughs> and I feel like, you know what? Why don't you just make the pro go every time I try to scroll with a web page? Because that's the feeling that you're giving me. Oh, I opened a share sheet. I want to scroll horizontally in it. Oh, I'm reading a book. I want to scroll the page with the pencil because it's more comfortable for me to hold this pencil in my hand than to always do this with my fingers. Nope, we're not going to let you do that. It's it's infuriating and it feels almost aggressive towards the user because there's just no reason for it. Now, again, I do want to stress that we don't know if this is a decision within Apple, but man, when it's been two betas later, it certainly feels like it's a decision. We're preparing for the worst based on the fact that we know this company. And I want to just just want to get this out there now. Mm. We use Apple products. We love Apple products. We know this stuff happens. Yeah, it's really annoying. We're not going to switch to the Windows Surface. It's extremely unlikely because there are many reasons other than just this that we use our devices yeah uh, but that is but that is precisely why this is so upsetting is because yeah. i look around and there are no other options for all the things that i want to do including transition costs that can do what i want to do because it's like people are like oh why do you use a windows tablet it's like okay listen you don't understand i don't use one markdown text editor i use five for different things like i have a lot of specific needs here that are only met by this ecosystem and so that is precisely why this is so upsetting. It's like, I don't have an alternative. And I view in this moment, if Apple makes this decision the way that I'm afraid they're going to, I am facing who knows how many years of having to use this thing in a limited way. And, and like going, going back to one of our earlier discussions about jailbreaking, I have never been so close to be tempted by jailbreaking than I am with this vision of Apple mm. releasing the software and not allowing you to use the pencil to interact with all of the interface. And I feel like, Apple, what justification could you possibly have to put me in a situation where I am making a decision 
between do I want to protect my digital security or do I want to protect the health of my hands? That is the the rock and the hard place that I find myself between. I'm like, okay, am I going to jailbreak an iPad Pro in the future because I can tell how much benefit I get from being able to use it like this? Or am I not and just going to accept that I'm going to have problems with my hands, that I'm going to have to limit the amount of time that I spend on iPads, as I have done in the past when I try to use them, in the way that I have been gloriously using perhaps my favorite product that Apple has released in the past five years. That, that's why it is, it is so upsetting. And listen, listeners, I want right now to try to call on the power of six degrees of separation. Someone listening to this podcast knows someone at Apple who knows the team that is in charge of this decision. I am deadly serious about what I am about to say. I will fly to Cupertino at any time at my own expense for the opportunity to have five minutes with that team to try and convince them to change this decision. I am deadly serious about this. This is how important this is to me because I am thinking about the health of my hands. I am willing to go to great cost and vastly greater opportunity cost to try and influence this in what I view as the only sane direction. My ideal result here is the result that I think makes the most sense considering the use case that we both desire is that this becomes a preference in accessibility. Please, please let this become a preference in accessibility, if nothing else. Yeah. Like if that if that's the only thing I can get, Apple, if you have some some kind of magic that you think you're going to be able to do with the pencil by not letting me scroll in Safari. I don't want it. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what it is. You could offer me nothing that I would take in exchange for this. It's I mean, it's just like if if Apple came to my house and took away all my Wacom tablets and then disabled Wacom tablets from ever working on my computer and they handed me a million dollars, I would say, please give me the Wacom tablet back because I can't buy new hands with a million dollars. That's the situation that I'm in here. So I'm just I'm very nervous about this, Mike. I am very nervous about this. 